Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Sphinx by Edgar Allan Poe, first published in Arthur's Ladies Magazine, January 1846. This is a very mysterious story to me. Um, I think I've unlocked at least part of it, but it's pretty mysterious, I, I still think. What do you think? I think I don't understand what you're saying. Uh, I I thought it was not only straightforward, but too simple. Too simple. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't. I I I I kind of worry that I overestimate um, Poe's brilliance. But every time I do that, I go back and look at it again and say, ah, maybe I'm reading too much into this. I tend to find that I'm not, and that I'm probably underestimating it. And that's kind of what this story is about as well. It's about overestimating and underestimating uh, little details. Well, that's certainly a good point. Um, I Let's make sure we're reading the same story. The way I see it, the story is a first-person narration. Mm-hmm of someone who at one point refers to his readers, but we never know uh, to whom he is writing or why, whether he's, it's a magazine account. I mean, we don't know how he thinks he has readers, but this fellow who thinks he has readers says, you know, he begins with, during the dread reign of the cholera in New York, I had accepted the invitation of a relative to spend a fortnight with him in the retirement of his cottage ornay on the banks of the Hudson. And so all of what happens is at this uh, fancy uh, vacation home of a relative. Uh, the story has to do with uh, this fellow uh, who is not only uh, oppressed by a sense of physical evil, that is the epidemic in New York, but also the sense of an omen. The omen that he really sees most uh, distressingly is a a huge, huge monster that he describes in extraordinary detail uh, crawling on the raw palisades, the landslide. It's mostly denuded of trees. And he estimates the size of this thing by seeing it in relation to the few trees that are left standing. It's very scientific. He gives us a very precise description of this, but it's a monster. And then it disappears and he faints away. He doesn't want to tell his cousin about it or relative, or he he calls him friend more often than relative, uh, because he wonders you know, is it some mania? Is he going crazy that he sees such a thing? Or maybe there really is this omen. Uh, but then uh, it happens again. While his uh, cousin is there, um, the cousin uh, smiles, um, takes out a book, shows him a picture of a, a death's head moth and says, uh, this is what's been bothering you. Uh, He says, now, here I am in the same position you were in before with my eye a a sixteenth of an inch from the window. And I see the moth is only a sixteenth of an inch high. 
So what he's done is, the, the relative is claiming, what he's done is not realize that what he was seeing up close was in fact not far away. And it's a question of perspective. The uh, Presumably the important thematic assertion is the one that the cousin makes or relative when he says, the idea that the principal source of error in all human investigations lay in the liability of the understanding to underrate or to overrate the importance of an object through mere misadmeasurement of its propinquity. That is how close or how far away it is. Uh, then follows a, a discussion that sort of generalizes this uh, so that we realize he doesn't necessarily, that is Poe, doesn't necessarily mean physical closeness and physical distance. Um, he says, to estimate properly, for example, the influence to be exercised on you, you mankind at large by the thorough diffusion of democracy, the distance of the epoch at which such diffusion may possibly be accomplished should not fail to form an item in the estimate. Yet you can tell yet can you tell me one writer on the subject of government who has never thought this particular branch of the subject worthy of discussion at all? So there is in that that long line there a sort of generalization in the form of uh, a critique of people who write about government. Uh, we don't know whether Poe is suggesting they have rosy opinions when they are far from democracy or they have jaded opinions when they're far from democracy or that their opinions are too uh, negative when they're close to it or too negative when they're far from it. But what he is saying is that we're not properly appreciating even something as fundamental and important to an American in the 1840s as the very notion of democracy. We're not fundamentally understanding it well because we're not even thinking about the necessity of placing ourselves in relation to it. That larger philosophical theme is an interesting assertion. But with that aside, basically the story is, gosh, Rudy, what am I seeing? Ooh, ooh, ooh. And then at the end, we find out it's this uh, Death's Head Moth, which I've got to say, in the reprint that we have available on our website, having a an illustration of a Death's Head Moth to begin with kind of gives it away. And uh, when the narrator says what he saw on the omen was a death's head uh, with four wings. And so, you know, I sort of immediately thought of the death's head moth and gosh, it turns out to be a death's head moth. And that's what I mean when I say it's it, I, I agree that it's it's well written. It's Poe and he's always eloquent. But um, the main story I found just too simple. That's why I said I yeah. don't understand what you mean when you said it's mysterious. Well, that's the thing is that it does appear really simple, um, and it's so simple that I think that that means there's since it's Poe, I don't think he, I don't think he is going for something that's simple. And so when I I sort of look at it at certain details more closely, it becomes as I guess the point of the story is is it's about perspective and about looking at what what it all means so one of the fun ways of looking at this story would be to say this is the first um daikaiju story you know giant monster story like godzilla or even closer mothra you know rodan um king kong this is the first story that 
you know, puts a giant monster as sort of a at the forefront of the story. But if we look at it that way, the ending seems to undercut it, right? Um, that's that's the position I want to be in when I'm reading it, and then I find out, oh, it's just a moth, a little tiny moth, a sixteenth of an inch. But then looking at it closer again, um, and some of the details, I'm actually far more fascinated by the cousin or the uh, relative, anyways than I am by the narrator, who is pretty much, I, I would say, I stand in for Poe, given that he's a writer, given that this is so, something... I'm sorry, how do you know he's a writer? Uh, because he says, my readers, I see. That's right. what I'm saying, yeah. Um, and more importantly, additionally, um, there's a ton of book talk in here. One, uh, The very first beginning, uh, uh, first paragraph... Um, I guess the second sentence. We had here around us all the ordinary means of summer amusement. And what with rambling in the woods, sketching, boating, fishing, bathing, music, and books, we should have passed the time pleasantly enough, but for the fearful intelligence which was reached us every morning from the populous city. So they have books. And indeed, uh, in that illustration, um, which is rather inaccurate in many respects, but... <laughs> Uh, he he has at least in his hand a book, which is in the process of falling to the ground as he spies the monster, right? Um, in the illustration, I think that that appealing to the book is a really interesting thing that happens. Um, on the same page, his richly philosophical intellect—he's talking about his his relative here, his host was not at any time affected by unrealities. As opposed to the narrator, who says, you know, this, the books that I'm reading have played upon my fancies, and the news, and thinking about what's going on in the city, I'm particularly sensitive to it, he acknowledges on his own. And then, if we skip to the end, after his cousin, who is very dismissive of omens and uh, all the such and and is surprised to hear the uh, the story of the giant monster coming out of the uh, the fallen opposing shore or crawling a, across it. Um, he sits down in his uh, relative's chair uh, just as he had at the beginning of the story, and then he says, or this is how it goes. He here closed the book and leaned forward, placing himself accurately in the position which I had occupied at the moment of beholding the monster, quote-unquote. Ah, here it is, he presented. He presently exclaimed. Now, that presently exclaimed, uh, I'd like to see how people would adapt that, because as we go on, it seems less exclaimy than it should be. It is reascending the face of the hill. And a very remarkable-looking creature, I admit it to be. Still, it is by no means so large or as distant as you imagined. For, for the fact is that as it wriggles its way up this thread, which some spider has wrought along the window sash, I find it to be about the sixteenth of an inch in extreme length. And then this is the part that gets me and also about the sixteenth of an inch distant from the pupil of my eye. So this guy has a tiny, tiny, tiny moth crawling in front of him, 
but it's only a sixteenth of an inch from his eye, and he has no particular strong reaction to that. Like, if you ha- had a moth a sixteenth of an inch from my eye, I'd be pretty upset. I'd be like, whoa, and stepping back in the same way that the narrator has earlier in the story. So, and then thinking about that, the magnification difference, right, and the, and the, and then what the subject of the story is, it, it, what is the story about? It seems to me that somebody, Poe, the narrator, somebody is saying that we're seeing the signs. The signs are there. And other people are saying there's no signs. Um, one of the, uh, the things that's interesting about the story is the timeline. So it's published in January 1846. Um, in 1832, there was a outbreak of cholera in New York, which is presumably where he's talking about, given that this is the Hudson. Uh, Hudson River is New York, right? And yep. 1849, three years later, there's another cholera out- outbreak. Um, and, and if we do some research into what was going on during both of these cholera outbreaks and subsequent dealings with it. Um, one of the things that's really interesting to think about is how they just got it wrong. They th- the, the public response, uh, that is the government response, and the public's going along with it, was that it was, about a, it was a moral problem. Not a uh, hygiene problem, but a moral problem. So the only low-class people would get the disease and that if you you know were upright and maybe even just they, they thought they would be immune to it because only new immigrants would get it and and that's really interesting because they didn't find out until after Poe's death what you know literally causes cholera so that think about what what the story means and and the title right it's not that close to a sphinx it is, in the same sense, like the Sphinx, a, a sort of a hybrid creature uh, in his f- original description. But the taxonomical description, the schoolboy's description given by the cousin, doesn't make the story and the and the point of the story, I think, go away. And seeing it that way, I, I find it to be still rather mysterious, because he doesn't nail his point down as much as let us think about it I, but, <clears throat> if that's what you mean by dis- by mysterious then uh, sure he asks us to think about it uh, it's genus sphinx is the genus for the death's head moth um, and we're told that so that justifies in a scientific way the the, the title of the story Books are indeed crucial, but they are crucial in more than one way. The very first description of the books um, is on that first page. His, that is my relative friends, endeavors to arouse me from the condition of abnormal gloom into which I had fallen were frustrated in great measure by certain volumes which I had found in his library. In other words, he has turned to the library for amusement, for relief from the sense of oppression that the presence of a cholera epidemic just downriver 
has uh, imposed upon him. And in fact, the books do the opposite. Mm-hmm. This is this is quite common in in Poe. The most well-known example of this is the uh, is the Raven, where you know that poor fellow who ponders weak and weary um, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore um, is trying in his library to find relief from the sense of uh, grief at the death of his love, Lenore. And among the the books, all he can find is a crow, which undoubtedly is just cawing, but every sound the crow makes in this library seems to the speaker of the poem to be nevermore, nevermore. The books become the domain within which, instead of finding relief, one finds um, further oppression. This is true also, for example, in the Oval Portrait, where the fellow is wounded and thinks that, you know, he comes in out of the storm, he can uh, uh, rest, but he opens a book that's by the bedside of the house that's been invaded. And it turns out that in the book, there's the story of a woman who dies because her uh, husband, an artist, has unwittingly drawn every bit of life out of her to transform it, transfer it to the canvas. So books, presumably, in Poe's work, can offer us wonderful escape, but in fact, they they do not. Now, the book that we see at the end is a schoolboy's account of natural philosophy, and that gives us something which really should make us feel uh, good, because now we can say. We understand the world. We know how to organize things. And that notion of organization, the relative saying it falls in this and this and this, it's genus, species, and so um, it is well known. And therefore, I understand it and I understand the relationship that you got wrong. So the world has set it right by the book and by proper reading of the book. But it's a different kind of book. It's a fact book, not a fiction book. Now, Where I would come in and use the word, well, I wouldn't use the word mysterious, Jesse, but I would say that that Poe invites us to look further. The fact is that the Sphinx is itself an ancient story of a giant monster. Mm -hmm. And we know the most famous story of the Sphinx is the one in which the Sphinx poses a riddle that if you don't answer it, it kills you. Right. He, he grabs you and he eats you. And uh, this is the riddle that that Oedipus has to answer. And the, the famous riddle is what what walks on for what goes on four in the morning, two at noon and three at night. And Oedipus answers man because we crawl as babies. We stride as adults and we need a cane in our old age. And so the Sphinx lets lets Oedipus go and then begins the kingship of Thebes and whatever else happens. Uh, but the, the, the Sphinx throws itself off the cliff and dies, uh, landing upon the bones of all of its prior victims. The word Sphinx comes from uh, the Greek, Greek sphingine to strangle. It's cognate with sphincter. So the, the, the Sphinx is a, is a strangling monster, huge, huge monster. And Oedipus gets away because he understands that the answer to the problem of the Sphinx is the human condition. And I think one could argue that perhaps Poe is suggesting here that what we need is to take a proper ad measurement, to use his word, mm. of the human condition 
in order to be able to decide, for example, is democracy a good thing or a bad thing? But I think that he goes, that is, Poe goes even further. In addition to wanting us to understand the background of the Sphinx and how it might uh, bear on getting the answer right or wrong, and presumably the narrator got the answer wrong when he thought the Sphinx was this giant monster, when in fact it was just a death's head moth, um, whereas the cousin got it right, there are other echoes that go in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. because although the genus is Sphinx, it is the death's head moth, and death is there, and we are told the the word Nell um, is K-N-E-L-L, the the word that Poe loves to use for the sound of uh, mournful bells, right? this is the word that he uses for the scream of the moth. So, you know, I looked this up and it turns out that the death head moth doesn't scream. It squeaks. Mm. You can actually find recordings of it squeaking online. And it's it's not particularly nice, but it's not in any way frightening. So if this squeak uh, sounded huge, it was because his eye was only a 16th of an inch away from the, the moth. And his mind was making a squeak into a knell. However, given the extraordinary detail of the school book, the detail, the kind of detail being clear understanding of the world, the kind of thing that should allow a book to give us a sense of control and calm in the midst of a world that brings us death through cholera and other means. we are in fact given something which is absolutely false. Now we all know that Poe really liked science Mm -hmm. and whether we knew it or not, since he gives us the lengthy taxonomy of this creature, uh, he must have taken the time to make sure that he understood the taxonomy of the creature. So I looked up the taxonomy of the creature and guess what? Mm -hmm. The average size of death's head moths, there are a number of sub varieties, the average size of death head moths always falls, depending upon the subvariety, between 100 and 132 millimeters. And for people who don't think in those terms, um, let me just say, basically, it's got a five inch wingspan. So for the cousin to say it's a sixteenth of an inch, mm-hmm. when Poe must know this is false, and the narrator didn't figure it out for himself anyway. There is something hidden in this story to get someone who really wants to go to town on it to recognize that both fiction and fact are mistaken here. And in that sense, it is very much a post story because it, what it says is you may answer the, que- the riddle of the Sphinx and you may get to go on about your life. But guess what, Oedipus? Tragedy will still before befall you. This is the human condition. I've got um, a couple of more quotes that I've highlighted and starred and such, and uh, it, it is often about this the, the the emotional reaction to to different two two different people seeing the same data and and getting different emotional reactions um this is on the second page on this subject we had long and animated discussions so uh, that is the popular belief in omens 
he maintaining the utter groundlessness of faith in such matters, I contending that a popular sentiment arising with absolute spontaneity, that is to say, without apparent traces of suggestion, had in itself the unmistakable elements of truth and was entitled to much respect. So, uh, it, it's kind of a, oblique as to what they're actually talking about, unless we sort of reflect upon what the Sphinx, the that is the, the Sphinx of the title, the moth, means. So, when later on on this page, uh, the narrator falls in a faint. He says, I fell at once, fainting to the floor. Um, he's falling either because he he's so upset or because he's getting the cholera himself, which is mighty spooky, but that can't be right because he's okay three or four days later maybe we'll see a little farther down the page and also we know i mean it was known as you say it wasn't until the 1850s that people knew the exact uh, vector for right. uh for cholera but people did know that if you didn't live in the neighborhood of the cholera you weren't going to get it that's why people went into the country uh, we now know it was because he didn't share the water sauce but source but 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 poe would have understood that it would have been psychosomatic cholera, mm-hmm. not actual cholera. Uh, I was now immeasurably, immeasurably alarmed, for I considered the vision either as an omen of my death, or worse, I like this, or worse, as the forerunner of an attack of mania. I threw myself passionately back into my chair, and for some moments buried my face in my hands. It was a very despairing, they call that double face palm, right? <laughs> <laughs> Then a little farther along, the host, uh, who resumed the calmness of his demeanor after I told him I just saw a giant monster, he says, uh, in respect to the confirmation of the visionary creature, when I had fully satisfied him of this on this head, he sighed deeply as if relieved. Oh, good. <laughs> some intolerable, uh, uh, relieved of some intolerable burden, and went on to talk with what I thought of as a cruel calmness of various points of speculative philosophy, which had heretofore formed a subject of discussion between us. So I, I, I believe this is a, a callback to their discussions about omens. And then he says, I remember his insisting, very especially, among other things, upon the idea that the principal source of error in all human investigations lay in the liability of the understanding to underrate or overvalue the importance of the object through mere misadmeasurement of its propinquity. So that's the exact same quote you picked out. One of them, in my estimation, of of these two characters, is having the wrong reaction, right? And at first we think we're in sympathy with the narrator. Because, first of all, he's telling the story. Second of all, we're seeing the description as he sees it. And then we're, we're pretty much with him until we get the explanation. Oh, it's just a moth, right? So our, our attitudes shift towards that of, of, of the cousin or the, the relative. And then we're, we're suddenly, I think, at the end, thrown back 
in the same way that he's you know knocked out of his chair we're thrown back into the position of thinking wait 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 a second the cousin sees a you know admittedly not super dangerous animal but it's crawling a sixteenth of an inch from his eye and he's just like oh yes there it is you know (laughs) that's not a normal reaction it's almost like he's not a human being if commander data from star trek next generation was telling you know that that character that would make perfect sense right oh it is merely a moth right but that's not our reaction when there is a a sixteenth of an inch is an incredibly short distance right i think that's why i actually do like the story even though i think of it as a simple one because it really problematizes both the fiction and the fact mm. Uh, the the reprint that you've made available to us, Jesse, is from the very fourth issue, uh, July 1926 of Amazing Stories. And Gernsback, the editor who first established science fiction as a an explicit separate genre by starting Amazing Stories in April of that year, uh, he had editorials for each of the issues that he edited. He lost control of the magazine, uh, ultimately. Um, This editorial for that issue is called Fiction Versus Facts. And in it, he makes important claims about science fiction looking impossible now. But who would have thought hundreds of years ago that we would have, for instance, airplanes? Mm -hmm. Um, So it will become, in fact, true tomorrow. The tagline for Amazing Stories was, and this happened, you saw it every month extravagant fiction today, cold fact tomorrow. Mm. This story that he has chosen to reprint looks like it's extravagant fiction today, but once the relative explains it, it's cold fact. Mm. But in fact, as I point out with the five inches versus a sixteenth of an inch, and you point out with the the ridiculousness of somebody not showing any emotional reaction to something a sixteenth of an inch from his eye, particularly a living thing sixteenth of an inch from his eye. Um, Extravagant fiction today still became extravagant fiction tomorrow. You know, the the end of that editorial, uh, Gernsback says, uh, in his own opinion, we should say that the ideal proportion of a science fiction story he calls it science fiction, should be 75% literature interwoven with 25% science. (laughs) Now, I don't know exactly how he weighs these things, but I think this story actually probably comes close because although the science seems to be the biggest part of it, it really is on reflection only the 25%. And the real story is about how neither the city mouse nor the country mouse Mm. really understands the human condition. But there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.